Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is artist and author of Uncle Silas, Genetis, David Follett. David, welcome. Hello. Hello, Magdalena. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Look, um, normally when guests join us, I usually open the show by asking them to read from their book. Uh, but yours are so visual, and I don't want you to have to shout <laughs> all the characters' parts. Um, so I thought uh, instead of having you read from the book, just for the readers who haven't yet got a copy of it, could I ask you to just give us a brief summary of the plot? For sure. Uh, the premise is that it, it's a kid's science fiction adventure story, so it really focuses on their perspective. Uh, and uh, their uncle, Uncle Silas, is a scientist who dabbles in uh, biology and, and genetics, and uh, his research has led him to combine nanotechnology with plant DNA in his greenhouse, uh, and it has worked so well that he, well, the, all the plants inside the greenhouse have just grown completely out of control, and uh, he is now locked inside his own greenhouse. So. His niece and nephew, Selena and Tommy, uh, are, uh, I guess, um, enlisted by his Uncle Silas's organic computer to um, go inside the greenhouse and find him. And it's pretty well an adventure story where they must... They're not really... They don't really comprehend all the scientific uh, who are in the, in the forest. Uh, all they know is that they just have to find him and find him fast. And uh, they're... they're um, yeah, that's pretty well a race against time. To, to get him out of there, and so, uh, yeah. So there's a lot in the book. Yep, a, a lot in the book. A lot of stuff that's um, you know pretty pretty uh, modern, really, and um, <laughs> maybe predictive. How did the book come about? How did you get all those strands together and pull it pull it into um, a single text? Yeah, sure. It's it's interesting. Uh, the the reason why I came up with the, uh, the the comic strip, it was originally meant to be a Sunday strip newspaper, or a Sunday newspaper comic strip, uh, and uh, uh, I was given the opportunity to pitch towards um, the newspaper in Sydney, the Sunday Telegraph, and uh, I thought, well, fantastic, that this will be a, a, a an opportunity to create a comic strip for kids where they'll, I can you know make an adventure comic strip and just have them want to read it week after week after week. So I wanted something with a massive cliffhanger, and I thought, uh, well, I can't really do a historical comic strip where you know a, a sense of high adventure is, would be strong. So I, I figured my best opportunity would be to make it set in either the present or the near future, where I could create my own parameters and, and explore and have fun and and, and uh, just go crazy with that. So. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I, I figured science would be my well, science fiction would be my best <laughs> avenue for that. And uh, yeah, the, I mean, there were all sorts of different things that influenced the the the, the end product. Uh, for instance, the the main girl Selena is modelled after my niece, uh, who was eight at the time. But I made Selena twelve, so she she could have someone to look up to and have a bit of adventure through her. Uh, and uh, in terms of having it in a greenhouse, I figured that would be, I guess I could just create what, whatever sort of plants and, and creatures I, I wanted uh, and not necessarily get bogged down too much in having very specific science fiction qualities or, or because my knowledge of science is, is pretty limited to be, to be honest, uh, but the concepts of science fiction I love, that the idea that you can, or at least, uh, uh, what's the word, um, I forget it right now. Not science fiction in the extreme, but uh, I 
forgotten the med- middle ground. There's a middle ground category, uh, and I'm forgetting it right now. But yeah, where I could just have fun and uh, so oh, I'm losing my train of thought now. <laughs> so yeah, it, it was pretty well for kids, and, and I just wanted to go crazy and uh, where uh, so the, the greenhouse, the planting side, could really predict how how things would go, and I just wanted to to have as much fun as possible and really put my main characters through through as much trouble and pain as I could because uh, I know that's what readers really want. They want to see characters suffer and yet, you know, win in the end. Yeah, come through the other side. That's right. But I mean, I, I did theatre sports for uh, several years and uh, one of the main tenets of theatre sports is that whatever scene is played, whatever characters are in a scene, uh, viewers want to see them changed somehow. And I really took that on board. For instance, um, Selena and Tommy, they, they enter the forest quite innocent and naive and uh, through no fault of their own, they come out of it in the, at the other end changed somehow. And for Selena, it's quite obvious how she's changed, but for Tommy, it is not yet obvious, and that will come out later in, in uh, other books. Mm. And I'll ask you about that later too. Um, how does Uncle Silas change? Uh, well... Good question. Um, if anything, he, he changes due to... Uh, I mean, he's created this whole mess, in essence, and uh, it, it's now up to him to, to clean it up. Um, but there, is, there are quite a few mysteries left hanging in this first book. And uh, he's, he, his purpose now really is to become the um, facilitator to, to discover the, the mysteries, to, to reveal exactly what is happening, to, to help the kids understand what is happening to them. Uh, and he will be changed in, in course of time by looking after them and, and uh, helping them cope and figuring out what's going on and, and trying to actually save them from from any danger that he may or may not foresee. And I, I guess, if anything, he becomes the, the teacher, the mentor uh, to their, their predicaments as they arise. There's, there's also a bit of a humbling, too, isn't there? I mean, you know, his, his invention has kind of um, gone way beyond what he originally thought. Yes, yes, of course. Well, I was quite fascinated because once you start thinking about nanotechnology and how it's quickly evolving and, and well, <laughs> ironic term there, uh, in science terms. Uh, Maybe literally as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's still a lot that's not necessarily known about it or, or the effects of, of, uh, of it all on, on people on, on, say, a genetic level or, or at least a, a nano level. Uh, and part of me wants to explore that and, and kind of put a magnifying glass to what could happen in extreme situations where things can go wrong. Uh, but I mean, naturally, within the confines of a, a good read for kids. <laughs> so I'm not going to do anything that's too scary, like a horror movie or anything like that. It's, it's going to be outright adventure and, and uh, to, to dabble in that. But I, I'm also curious as to uh, like a lot of things like plastics these days that you hear reports of traces of plastic or at least uh, particles and molecules uh, and, and even uh, modern drugs etc being the traces of them being found in, in water supplies around the world and you know what could possibly be created in, in a country in a northern hemisphere perhaps turning up trace elements uh, in the southern hemisphere etc and then modern uh, science and, and uh, you know, how humans are creating things these days, uh, the effects of them aren't necessarily known until you know, years, decades, maybe centuries later. We just don't know yet. And so I'm kind of exploring that possibility in a 
smaller world that I can have fun with. And for instance, this is the greenhouse. Mm. That kind of brings me to the to the idea of slime, um, which is a fairly important uh, character in your book. <laughs> Um, now, I, I know you don't want me to get too scientific, and I'm not going to ask you to be scientific, but Great. a little bit like Uncle, Uncle Silas, um, were you surprised that some of the things that you touched on have proved to be a little prescient? Yes, yes. I, I was um, well impressed by an article uh, I found on the Internet of, of bacteria and mold, as well as uh, fungi, uh, being potentially used as hard drives. Uh, which is something that, yeah, definitely, as you say, I, I, I really get into in, in this book. Uh, I was amazed. I was impressed. My, the, the reason I wanted to explore the, uh, the, uh, the whole concept of interconnectivity in the forest uh, was to, I was, I was exploring in the beginning when I was creating all these characters and, and developing this world, this greenhouse world, this forest that they were inhabiting. I, I wanted to add as much science as possible, and I, I really wanted the kids to see nature in a way that they they hadn't thought of before, and to do that would be, uh, in, you know, to imbue them somehow. With I could either have gone a fan, in, on a fantasy route where the, the the trees could then come to life like elves, or you know, have all these spirits and fantasies, etc. Uh, but I wanted definitely to to have some sort of potentially realistic grounding for what they would experience in the forest, and there are. Bubble creatures, there are what they, they call holograms or hallucinations of sorts. And uh, I wanted Uncle Silas to be able to come in after the fact and give some semblance of an explanation as to what's really going on, even though he doesn't necessarily know how or why. Uh, all he knows is that he's created this uh, accidentally, this whole situation accidentally, and, and he needs to understand it himself. And, and the, actually, the wonderful thing about Uncle Silas and having these, uh, his two, yeah, his nephew and niece in, in the whole situation as well is that he has to explain things to them in a simplistic way, which is fantastic for me, because <laughs> I don't have to go into detail uh, that uh, in scientific terms that I, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, uh, that's one of the dangers of, I guess, creating a character that's smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> and putting in two younger children that need to, to hear a clean <laughs> Speaking of younger children, um, there's one character in this in this book that really um, fascinated me and, and maybe freaked me out a little bit too, and that was um, the son, the 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 um, the, the mm -hmm. son. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, well, I mean, I, I was reading a lot of uh, it, yeah, I, I was reading a lot in the creation of the book. I was reading a lot of um, Gnosticism. I was re reading into myths. I was, I was reading a lot of uh, Joseph Campbell and. Uh, just, just trying to draw in as many sources of inspiration as possible. And naturally, the, the concept of the green man came up. Mm. And uh, I, I thought how wonderful it would be to have that in, or as a character or a motif in this forest, because it makes sense. It, uh, it, it does add an, a certain sense of mis, mis, mystery, uh, mystique, and uh, uncertainty as well. And uh, just the whole concept that he is an unknown factor. He's he, he, he can't be predicted in a lot of ways. Uh, and again, I, I figured, how can I explain his presence uh, in this forest? And I thought, oh, okay, fantastic. I'll have him being a, um, I guess, a, a genetic anomaly. Um, that's a combination of, um, 
Oh, without giving too much away, he, he's accidentally created, but, uh, uh, yeah. So, and that's, he, that's his reason for being in the forest. But uh, I love the concept of him now, because now I can really delve into man's relationship with nature, and, and especially when you start splicing DNA with nanotechnology, what happens if you start splicing DNA with DNA, and with that combination of nanotechnology, what's going to happen? The joy of having Loki now, the, the, the son who's half plant, half human, is that uh, he, I, I can really have fun with uh, his development over over the course of the story arc, the broader story arc. Uh, and uh, no one really will know how he will evolve. And he's still young. He's, he's primal, uh, which comes through quite <laughs> readily in the book. He's, he's young. He, he has had no... Father, his human side has had no father side, father uh, figure to uh, look up to or, or have a teacher or mentor. Mentor, he's just reacted primarily in the forest, and, and that's been his world for however long. It couldn't have been a, a long life. He's in essence a creeper, and creepers have uh, uh, a short but uh, quite intense lifespan. Yes. So it's that, yeah, that's pretty well his his rundown. And, and he's cute too, and which is always nice for for children. You know, you you kind of feel for him. Oh, for sure, for sure. Well, but but I do want each character in, in the Uncle Silas reality to to be to have some aspects of them that people will empathise with, will sympathise with, and want to you know want them to feel for these characters uh, because. Of, uh, you know, even though they will make mistakes and, and they will go into dangerous situations and they'll freak out. And I guess everyone knows how, what it's like to freak out in <laughs> a freaky situation if something is completely new or, or uh, uncertain. Uh, so, yeah, hopefully people will, will um, enjoy his development as well as uh, the kids as well, and Uncle Silas's especially. Mm. Now, this isn't your first cartoon, um, but it is the first, I guess, cartoon that has coalesced into a novel. So just talk to me a little bit about some of the processes you went through to move between visuals and text and, you know, pulling that together into a single whole. Oh, it was um, quite quite a journey. Uh, I hadn't done anything this uh, in this intense long form before. I've, I've certainly written a lot of shorter form uh, comic strips, uh, three panels, that sort of thing, from newspapers and and my own satisfaction and enjoyment. So this was a massive challenge, and knowing that the intended result was to be a, uh, a weekly newspaper comic strip where there would be a cliffhanger on, uh, at the end of it all, uh, it forced me to actually do the smart thing and write a paragraph breakdown or a sentence breakdown for each page uh, so that I would know what would be happening at each stage throughout the whole thing. And that really forced me to to shuffle and change and put into a sequence that worked uh, everything that um, uh, you know, all these disparate ideas that I could either uh, attach onto this character or that character and their reactions and, and their emotions especially. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I, I really wrote it down first. I did, although I have a lot of fun developing visual beats, um, getting or having, having uh, visual ideas and, and scenarios that I wanted these characters to be in that I knew would look you know, really interesting on the page uh, and trying to figure out figure it out like a, a jigsaw puzzle and put them all into place. 
uh, with a paragraph, and then from there I, I pretty well penciled and wrote the dialogue at the same time. So I'm a very visual person. That, that's something that you know I do a lot of storyboards for, for advertising, film, and and uh, television, etc. So for me, putting a scene down visually makes sense, and that's just how I work. And uh, putting the dialogue in that at the same time was the way was my preferred method. I, I wasn't able to sit down and write on the on the keyboard all the dialogue at once or in one hit. That's just I can't do that without having some visual concept of, of the scene, the scenario at the same time. Uh, and uh, so I penciled that out, and uh, so all my pencil roughs have all my hand scribbled dialogue at the same time. And then once all that was pretty well in, uh, uh, tidied it up, and the dialogue I knew I could change at the last minute uh, in the computer. Uh, you know, just a couple of delete <laughs> presses, and, and then I, I can type in a completely new sentence. I, I enjoyed that. I could leave that fine-tuning until the very end. The visual side, I really had to focus on uh, once I had penciled everything down and, and put into order all the beats of the story. Uh, so the art took such a long time to do. And, and all the coloring as well. Uh, it looks very vibrant and very colorful because of the, the nature of the forest. I wanted it to be almost hyper-real and saturated, or oversaturated in all its colors and, and lushness. Uh, and um, yeah, and the dialogue pretty well stayed the same, which uh, I, I didn't feel it needed to be paired or edited too much. Uh, but uh, I mean, naturally now looking back at the work, I can see it for what it is and think, oh, I'd love to change that piece of dialogue. I'd, I'd actually love to to redraw this page or this scene or let it breathe a bit more as well. Yeah, I think every author does that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, what, what do you do? I've always wondered about this um, with uh, visual work. What do you do with the drawings or the art that you've created? Well, um, the the first 15 pages were, were penciled up and then traced uh, on a light table, and I used traditional brush and ink to draw up all the line work. Uh, and there was a bit of a hiatus for maybe a year, a year and a half, while I had to focus on other work. Uh, and uh, newspapers weren't picking up the book. Uh, I wasn't getting anywhere with it, so I focused on my other comic strips like Cookerberry and Harry the Dog, and all my illustration work as well, my freelance career. And then when I came back to the book and was able to focus on it uh, more intently, I had developed such a rapport with drawing straight into the computer uh, with my Wacom tablet that um, all the other pages after that were drawn straight into the computer. Mm. Uh, and thankfully, I've asked other professionals in the field, and they can't spot it. So I'm really grateful for, I'm, I'm actually really grateful for that year and a half, I think, break, where I was able to practice more and more with my, uh, getting familiar with drawing into the computer, digitally. Uh, so there are only around 15 pages <laughs> of the original artwork. After that, it's all digital, I'm afraid. Uh, and all the coloring is naturally done in, in the computer. Um, Mm, so that was the process for this. And, and what took you to the next step, which was to, I guess, find the new recruits program by Dark Horse Comics? How, how did you find them? What drew you to it? Oh, I was, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of comics. I read it uh, quite a lot. And uh, it, it's actually an, an expensive habit because, uh, well, it was previously, because a lot of libraries wouldn't stock comics. And actually, I'd be sourcing them out on the internet, in comic shops, etc. And so... 
you know, finding out on, on the Dark Horse webpage that they had a new recruits program was was an instant draw card to me. Even though I knew that they may or may not like the, uh, the premise that it's a Sunday newspaper strip, I figured the story itself might be appealing. So I sent it in uh, to the competition, and uh, I heard nothing for about a year. Uh, I think they had so many entries. It was a cold call, really. So the, it was worldwide as well. So you can imagine how many entries they had. Uh, and I only found out about a year later that I actually got to the, made it to the top of the pile consistently. And they asked if I was still keen to publish it, and I said, "You bet." Uh, <laughs> Um, uh, the, the only problem being I had to actually finish it. So I told them, yep, fantastic, I'll just need some time to finish it and, you know, color it up, etc. And I gave them a time frame and they said, yeah, we can work around that. Uh, and it was a, almost a couple of years later, uh, if not more, I think it was around three, to be honest, uh, but possibly four from Pencil to Actinay, it's probably four years in total, but it took me from getting the contract to... Uh, to finishing this. So it's been quite a long haul. And of course, it's all been in my own time and outside of my own work and on weekends, etc. So mm. as I'm sure any any author doing their first book can uh, can understand. Yes, or second for that matter. Um, <laughs> has this changed your audience uh, or, or just expanded the existing one, do you think? Oh, expanded, I'm sure. Mm. I'm sure. Um, and I've certainly done my best here in Australia to publicise it as much as possible. The thing with Dark Horse is um, they're a fantastic publisher. They're really well known in America, but they don't have established offices outside of America. So here in Australia, I've, I've pretty well had to push it myself. So people have certainly found out more and more about it. The people in the comics world uh, uh, weren't necessarily aware that uh, this was around uh, or that I was working on it, I was pretty quiet during the whole process. Uh, I was, you know, heads down, thumb up, just trying to finish this thing. And, uh, of course, now that it has been finished, I've been able to push it and push it and push it. But, um, yeah, and I've been submitting it to all sorts of awards and, and uh, yeah, whatever I can I can think of left, right, and centre. It, it's um, hard to get it into shops in Australia because it's not, I mean, you know, distribution and, and all of that. I mean, it's, it's hard enough to get a locally produced book in a shop these days. Yeah, yeah, very true. And a lot of larger bookshops have their well-established distribution systems already in place, or they might go through one in particular. And it does depend on whether that distributor distributor has a graphic novel or a comic category that they tap into. Uh, and unsurprisingly, a lot of them don't. Uh, so it, it has been difficult to get them into bookshops, but once people know here, once people here in Australia know that I'm, in a, I'm an Australian and I have had a, a graphic novel published by an American publisher, they're, they're more than willing to, to go out of their way to stock it. It's been fantastic. Oh, that's good. So the, the book has a, a definite ecological feel to it, um, probably one of the strongest threads running through that, the book, to me anyway. Um, talk to me a, bit about, a little bit more about that um, well, I guess it's, it's pretty well a, a, a hot topic in so many ways. Uh, the, the joy I found initially of drawing the forest and, and letting my imagination run loose was quickly tempered by the amount of detail putting in to make it feel real. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was 
uh, you know, but that's one of the bad things about having a vivid imagination and, and uh, going out of one's way to, to convey that visually, you know. The, the joy of, of writing with words is that you can say, uh, you know, except from the foliage, the lush green, you, you can describe quite openly and leave it leave it hanging for the reader for them to fill in the gaps visually. But with with art and comic books, you, you really do have to be specific. Uh, and, and certainly my style, I have to be very specific. Um, and uh, so that, I mean, the joy of being able to draw the forest in the beginning kind of lessened towards the end. But in terms of the ecological themes, the, or the, yeah, the forest themes, the whole concept of the environment, uh, it's a hot topic, and I really wanted to explore the fun that I could have with it. I didn't want to preach. I didn't want to be any sort of uh, new age um, Bible battery in the sense you know, yeah, on the environment or anything like that. I wanted first and foremost to create a good story that has these concepts that kids could think about uh, afterwards and, and you, know, you know, almost implant these ideas and concepts by subterfuge rather <laughs> <laughs> than be yes. completely overt about it. Or even by the transformation of the characters and how they have to, you know, change the way they look at the forest that they're in. Yeah, exactly. And and to to give kids uh, the, the the freedom or at least the permission to look at a tree in a new light, thinking, you know, maybe what is hidden inside this tree? What is different about this tree that I can't see from the outside? What is science finding out about trees? Or, you know, or plants or nature or the environment? Um and, and, that, and that's something that I really like. I, I'm big on on allowing or on using the imagination and and in new and different ways and and uh, almost playing around with people's concepts of, of reality. It, it's great fun. Yeah. And and have you been surprised by the book's reception? Uh, no, no. Um, I've been hopeful that it's been well received and, and a, a lot of the feedback that I have had has been fantastic. Uh, it, it, but it's a case of me being a first time author in, in the graphic novel world and so not not many people know about me in this arena uh, and so it's been a hard push trying to get it out there. But the, in terms of the response, no, I, I've been uh, very happy with it uh, and uh, you know, people's feedback, especially from kids, Kids, it's written for kids, and they're the best, uh, I guess, reviewers of a book. If they like it, fantastic, I'm doing something right. If they hate it, well, I'm doing something wrong. Uh, and and every every other um, uh, response from from uh, adults and the like is is just icing on the cake, really. Yeah, uh, particularly the um, those that struggle with reading the, the graphic novel is such a fantastic way of um, you know making them see the connection between images and words. Definitely, it, it, an intense, it, it's a combination of words and pictures. It, it's a combination of two art forms that uh, you can express so much uh, using these two combined. Mm. Um, definitely, uh, but the, the problem also is that you have to be specific with the art to a degree, uh, and you can be quite open with the language, the, the written word that you use. Mm. But in, in terms of my approach to, to storytelling in the graphic narrative form. Uh, I'm, I'm quite action-oriented. I, I like describing action uh, as best as possible because, for me, that, that's what I enjoy. 
and it's probably what I'm best at. Uh, it, if I was to have a scene of, that went on for several pages of talking heads, I might struggle a bit. But as long as there's, a, say, a, a leap or a jump or a, a dramatic moment, then fantastic. I'll, I'll have fun with that. Now, uh, yeah, speaking of action, there's clearly more to come, more action to come in this story. Yeah, you know, we're kind of left wanting more. Um, <laughs> can we get some hints? Of the, are you working on the sequel? Oh, yes, I'm working on the sequel slowly, slowly, of course. I've got a couple of notebooks filled with, with ideas, and I'm very close to nailing down a sequence of putting them all together and uh, putting all these visual beats together. Uh, well, the first book is called... Um, and that's obviously a play on gen- genetics, uh, gen- genetics and uh, genesis. Uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's obviously a, a, a form of, of um, an origin story, hence... Um, uh, Genesis, uh, and um, I was really taken with the. And it's almost like a Gnostic version of the um, Genesis story, where uh, rather than Adam and Eve being a forest uh, or a, a Garden of Eden where everything's perfect, in the Gnostic sense, it's, it's Adam and Eve in in the Garden of Eden that's slightly corrupted, uh, and uh, so they have to. You know, figure out things and, and uh, make the best of what they can. Uh, the following books will be going through the um, Catonic um, form, so it'll be earth, water, air, and fire. Uh, and uh, the challenge for me is to be setting it all in South Australia, which is my intention. So the second book will be earth, um, or at least around that theme. And uh, I hope I'm not going to be giving too much away, but it'll be underground. Mm. And uh, there'll be there'll be monsters, <laughs> creatures, and and uh, all sorts of high adventure. Oh, that's wonderful! And I like that. It's an ending too. There will be monsters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't avoid it. I seriously can't avoid it. I have to. Yeah. It's an adventure story for kids. I have to have monsters. Absolutely. I uh, look, um, David. That's all we have time for today. Um, thank you so much for dropping by. Thank you very much. I, I really enjoyed it. And don't forget to join us next time. We'll be interviewing Brain Cuttings author Carl Zimmer. Okay, thanks very much. Bye-bye.